listening to KHOL. This is a special regional episode of Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. This week's show features stories from our ongoing reporting project with the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Collaborative about the transition away from fossil fuels across the Mountain West. You can find KHOL stories for this project on our website at 891khol.org. But today we'll hear from reporters in Colorado on everything from rewriting the rules of post-coal economies to tribal investment in hydroelectric power projects. Our first story comes from KGNU in Boulder, where the city came up with a unique solution to provide access to solar energy for mobile home residents, a solar garden. Rosanna Longo-Better reports. We are in the Honderasa community. We are uh, walking and see the new things that uh, we have uh, here in Ponderosa, like the streets, new lights. Ponderosa is one of the five mobile home parks in the city of Boulder. In 2019, the city purchased the park to maintain affordable housing and to improve park infrastructure. One of the projects the city took on was creating access to solar energy for the residents. A lot of things, a lot of changes that we have having in in Ponderosa. Carlos Valdez, who has lived in Ponderosa for nine years, says his energy bill is now lower. During the summer, I was paying like $80, $90, and now I'm paying $40, $35. It was my lowest bill. Ponderosa residents getting the solar energy save on average more than $400 on their electricity bills each year. Low-income communities typically pay higher energy costs as the homes are often not well insulated and are less energy efficient. Caroline Elam, Energy Systems Senior Manager for the City of Boulder, said in addition, mobile home residents have historically been excluded from accessing solar energy because the panels don't fit on the home. They can't support solar panels on their roof, they're not structural, there's other limitations. And so we really wanted to figure out how to come up with a solution that benefited everybody in the community. The city came up with the idea of a solar garden located outside of the park. So one of the benefits of what we have as a, as a city organization is we own a lot of land and structures. And so Several years ago, we did an analysis. We hired a company to look at where all the potential was um, on things that the the city itself owned. So whether that was um, buildings like an airport or our municipal buildings or land. Um, And this particular garden, we found a location for it. It's adjacent to the Boulder Reservoir at the north end of Boulder. And one of the benefits of solar gardens is they don't have to be located exactly. Um, where the the customers are, the people who are getting the benefits of it, so we can take advantage of places that are have that space to install the system. Elam says the funding for the project comes from a completely different industry. It's funds we actually um, collect as part of our um, man- marijuana cultivation licensing process. Coincidentally, but. Um, they're required uh, to offset their energy. We reinvest that in the community, so we had some some funding available, and we were able to make that investment. 
And we started looking at different ways we could bring solar. The first resident to allow the city to install the solar system is Kathy Slurth. Yeah, I ended up being the first person who actually got hooked up. It, it, it didn't start till I think it was July last year when, when it physically was going to be turned on. But it was a couple months before the glitches all got worked out. And so my first bill was um, an $80 savings. And, but it's averaged out so far to about $37 a month. And we were told that the city was going to up how much uh, solar energy we could have. And so we were told at some point that our bills should be at least paid half of our bill, which would really be nice. And it was kind of nice, too, that the way it worked out. So it was actually hooked up before we had to start using our furnaces to help balance the extra bill added on from, you know, now having to heat our homes for the winter. The Ponderosa Solar Garden is the first city-owned garden in the country that is dedicated to low-income participants. The city is looking at other solar garden projects to expand access to renewable energy to other low-income communities, renters, and those who live in multifamily buildings. For KGNU, I am Rosana Longobeter. As the U.S. transitions away from coal, many communities are looking to tourism to fill the economic gap left behind by a shuttered industry. Some places began that transition decades ago and are now facing new challenges. Christopher Biddle of KBUT and Crested Butte reports on a new initiative in the Colorado legislature to rewrite some of the rules of the post-coal economy. Gunnison County Commissioner Jonathan Houck assumed his leadership role just as the coal industry there was really bottoming out. The closure of two mines, one suddenly after a fire and subsequent collapse, was a big hit to the county's tax base. Here's how Houck puts it in perspective. If you equate what that meant to the economy here and what that would look like in Denver, that would be like a company with 17,000 people leaving Denver. That's a big deal. But luckily, Gunnison County had planned for this. Over the other side of Kebler Pass is the town of Crested Butte, once an outpost for the numerous mines of all sorts in the area. In the 60s, when the industry couldn't sustain the town anymore, the locals successfully made the switch to skiing. In time, Crested Butte also became a hub for mountain biking and became famous for its wildflower festival held every spring. In 2002, the county took advantage of a state law that allowed it to collect a 4% lodging tax. Again, Jonathan Houck. So that could be a hotel, a motel, a bed and breakfast, a short-term rental, uh, anything under 30 days, they pay that fee, that tax. And that then goes into a fund that is overseen by the Board of County Commissioners. Who are then obligated to spend that money on tourism promotion and it worked. Save for the Great Recession, the area saw steady growth in visitation for almost two decades. But tourism also began to take its toll on the community. Waves of gentrification doubled and then tripled the cost of housing. The urban hordes trashed natural settings and eroded bike trails. Locals complained about a lack of diverse job offerings. 
The community adapted to some of these concerns. Local organizers and volunteer groups took stewardship of the trails and other natural settings. The Ice Lab, a sort of training school for entrepreneurs, came right out of federal money meant for communities transitioning from coal and was meant to bring new and exciting jobs. Still, the housing problem just got worse and worse. All the while, a growing contingent of residents were calling for a halt to marketing for tourism while the county dealt with more pressing problems. Then the pandemic hit. The system collapsed and never fully recovered. The town of Crested Butte declared an official housing emergency. Workers' shortages closed businesses, and the cost of housing shot up again. In a knee-jerk reaction, county commissioners turned off summer tourism marketing and used the money instead to promote the local college, because at least students could live in dorms and wouldn't be adding to the problem. Two years out, with the housing crisis in full swing, Hauk wants to spend money on something that helps, not just something that doesn't hurt. Which is why he's asking the legislature to change the rules for lodging taxes. Trust communities. They're still going to market. They still want to bring people to our community. But at the same time, they want to grow the amenities that they need for the workers and for the landscape. And so that's really what we're trying to do is not pigeonhole it into it can only be for housing, but housing could be one of many things that this expanded use would allow. State Representative Dylan Roberts, a Democrat of Avon, agrees. And of course, our mountain communities are great and people are certainly coming to visit our mountain communities. And so um, there's been a push by county commissioners and local governments to be to ask us to change the law so that they can use lodging tax revenue for workforce needs like housing, child care community development. That's Representative Roberts speaking at a town hall event in early January before he and a bipartisan group of lawmakers introduced a bill that would open the door for lodging taxes to go somewhere other than tourism marketing. So that would be a really exciting, uh, sustainable source of funding for affordable housing for our workforce or other workforce needs. Roberts has bipartisan support with Republican sponsors in both the Senate and the House. The bill was orchestrated mostly by a coalition of Colorado counties, and Hauk played a major role in its writing. It's not the first time he's tried to push an idea like this, and he usually meets a united front from tourist industry leaders like Vail and Altera. He thinks that this year, the situation has changed for enough communities that the bill will pass. There is still one operating coal mine in Gunnison County, and coal still makes up a major part of the county's tax revenue. The mine's eventual closure may not be as big of a hit to the county next time around if they have new options. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Christopher Biddle. story in this bonus regional episode of Jackson Unpacked brings us to Fort Lewis College in Durango. There, students are studying a different approach to climate change and how to transition away from fossil fuels. KDUR's Sarah Flower has more. This is my dream course. This is my dream course because it's the course, the only course I teach. It's about the what could be for science rather than the fundamentals and the building blocks and making sure that you have the skills that you need. Dr. Heidi Stelzer is a professor of environment and sustainability and biology at Fort Lewis College. 
This semester, she's teaching a course on science values and environmental leadership, an upper division level class that takes a different, more solutions-oriented approach to science. This includes examining the ecological effects of climate change and exploring alternative energy systems that move us away from fossil fuels. For Stelzer, teaching about what could be to future environmental leaders is just as important, if not more, than the basics of these subjects. It's recognizing where and how much more learning comes from asking questions and where I can pop in fundamentals but we're not dominated by fundamentals. There's still so much about the basic biology that we will cover, but we'll cover it through story, we'll cover it through questions. Why does the sun shine? Why does the ocean currents flow? Why is there wind? In the first week of class for the spring semester, roughly 20 students filled the classroom as small breakout groups were formed to discuss what the current role is for scientists and science in society today. Ashley Jorgensen is a senior majoring in environmental sciences at the college. Jorgensen says scientists' biggest role is to make a difference, especially when it comes to fossil fuels. We have the technology there to make changes. Like my first thought was like energy sources and like solar panels have so much potential, but they're not being implemented anywhere. And so I think that's on a policy level for sure because individuals can take action and I think it's a mix of both. Jorgensen says she appreciates the more philosophical approach to science and recognizes her role as a future environmental leader. Although looking ahead, Jorgensen feels that making those critical changes about fossil fuels on a policy level is our best hope. But for Stelzer, working and learning from the students' ideas is what helps her become a better professor and a scientist that can create change. I learn as much, if not more, from students than anything I've ever taught them. And so when I hear that phrase, teaching solutions, I think if we can grow out of the space of what we see as the norm and, and sort of our first thought about what teaching is and recognize it's a community thing because I have my biases, you have your biases, we all, all have those experiences that have influenced us for better and for worse and where and how do we step into a space where we're open to hearing how would you solve something? Tools do you want? What ideas matter? Who do you see is important? So we all have to be part of that teaching, learning, growing, thinking space. This course's theoretical approach is just one of many in how education will play a crucial role in transitioning away from fossil fuels as they educate a new generation of environmental leaders. For KDUR News, I'm Sarah Flower. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. This bonus episode is featuring stories from our ongoing reporting project with the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Collaborative about the transition away from fossil fuels. Coming up next, as the impacts of climate change worsen, many are turning their attention to the harmful greenhouse gas methane. Scientists estimate methane is more than 80 times more potent than carbon dioxide. 
President Biden and other global leaders have promised to cut 30% of methane emissions by 2030. In Western Colorado, Pitkin County is working with a group of stakeholders to capture a large amount of methane that's been leaking out of abandoned coal mines above the town of Redstone. Aspen Public Radio's Eleanor Bennett reports. It's late September last year, and the Crystal River Valley is aglow with golden aspen leaves framed by snow-capped peaks. Local climate scientist Chris Kasky is crouching in front of an old mine portal and coal basin that's been filled in with rocks and dirt. Kasky is using a methane sensor to show a group of local stakeholders where a steady stream of air and methane is leaking out from a small hole in the porous earth. You can see those little wild roses are, are blowing in the breeze. That breeze is mostly air that's, that's entering down lower and coming up through, but we measured it earlier. It's uh, almost 2% methane by volume. Coal Basin was once dominated by coal mines that first opened in the late 1800s. This coal was saturated with natural gas, mostly methane, and that's just for geology reasons. And that methane is a minor safety hazard. So during mining, it was vented to protect the miners. And that methane has continued to leak out uh, ever since. When the last of the five mines shut down in the early 90s, the mining company was mandated to restore the area. But Kasky estimates the mines are still leaking over a million cubic feet of methane every day. According to local officials, that's equivalent to over half of Pekin County's reported CO2 emissions each year. That includes all the traffic, all the houses, all the aircraft landing at Aspen Airport. And Pekin County being wealthy is not a low footprint place. Kasky says the methane seeping out of the mines isn't concentrated enough to impact hikers or bikers, but it is making its way into the atmosphere and contributing to climate change. It's a huge opportunity to reduce climate pollution because if we can capture this gas and either use it or just destroy it by burning it, that is a a very good thing to do. Representatives from State Senator Michael Bennett's office, Pitkin County, Holy Cross Energy, and others hiked nearly nine miles with Kasky to witness the problem firsthand. For Pitkin County Commissioner Greg Poshman, the trip made the benefits of taking action clear. This may be the easiest way to get a huge bang for our buck to reach our carbon goals, um, you know, certainly by 2030, if not sooner. Kasky says the cheapest solution would be to burn the methane, which creates CO2 instead. And that really looks like wasting it, but right now it's already being wasted, and CO2 is less bad for the atmosphere than methane. Another option is to use the gas leaking out of the mines to generate electricity. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, there were only two other projects of this kind in the country as of 2019. Kasky estimates Coal Basin could produce enough electricity to power about 2,000 homes. But the mining area is located on a mix of Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management, and private land. So Pitkin County will need to get permission from individual landowners as well as the federal government. Mona Newton is the former executive director of the Aspen-based Community Office for Resource Efficiency. She's now a consultant on the project with Kasky. She and the stakeholder group have sent letters to state and federal officials asking for their support. But she says the project shouldn't be used as an excuse for Pitkin County to keep polluting the atmosphere.
we can't stop working on the emissions that are generated within Pitkin County, but this one is, this will go a long way towards helping to preserve our climate. If the project gets approved, construction could start as soon as next year. Eleanor Bennett, Aspen Public Radio News. Our last story today takes us to the Four Corners region, where the Ute Mountain Ute tribe is moving towards an economy driven by renewable energy production. That's after historically relying on fossil fuels. The tribe already supplements its electricity with solar power. And as KSJD's Sophia Stewart-Rossi reports, it's also now looking into hydroelectric projects. The Ute Mountain Ute tribe is one of three federally recognized tribes of the Ute Nation in southwest Colorado. And the natural scenery of the tribe's lands is dreamy. Light winds breeze by cliffs, and there are canyons of all different shades that rise sharply out of the high desert landscape. In fact, the region is known for its steep mesas. The reservation borders Mesa Verde National Park. And at the southernmost tip of the park proper, there's a valley that drops down more than 1,000 feet, a valley that holds a profound amount of renewable energy potential. This particular area is the planned site of a hydroelectric project that could produce more than 600 megawatts of electricity. Scott Klo is the Ute Mountain Ute's Environmental Programs Director. The fascinating thing about hydroelectric projects is that they last a really long time. So, The project being considered for Ute Mountain Ute Reservation would involve what's called a closed-loop pumped storage hydropower. And it acts similarly to a giant battery because it can store power and then be switched on and off as electricity is needed. The project is a configuration of two water reservoirs at different elevations connected by a long pipe that passes through a turbine. Think of it as the power of gravity. It can generate power as water moves from the top reservoir to the bottom reservoir and through the turbine in the process. But a lot of energy will be needed to bring the water back up to the top reservoir to do the whole system again. And the type of energy to do that makes a big difference with a project like this. Professor Gigi Richard is the director of Four Corners Water Center. And so in order to make it truly renewable, then that energy to do the pumping needs to be coming from a renewable source. Richard is not a part of the Ute Mountain Ute project, but she is an expert in water in the Four Corners region. And she says there's been problems with drier water years in the underground water aquifers that rely on precipitation to stay around. She explains if you dig a hole and hit water, that's a water table. And some water tables are sustained from rain and snow that seeps through the ground, something the Four Corners region doesn't get a lot of. And pumping that water out for a hydroelectric project could actually be problematic under dry conditions. In this case, you're taking groundwater, pumping it to the surface, where some of it may be evaporated into the atmosphere, so it's a net loss to the groundwater system. Bernadette Cuthair is the Director of Planning and Development for the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe. And she says they're looking into how they can decrease water evaporation rates in dry areas and make this project last as long as possible. And what, what I asked them to do was study 
floating uh, solar panels on the reservoir. Cut Hair says based on a survey released to tribal members in 2011, they're working on making sure members are informed and open to easing hesitation to new technologies. The Ute Mountain Ute Tribe has a legacy with the oil and gas industry, and they have oil fields in the Four Corners region. Historically, the tribe has relied on revenue from fossil fuels like natural gas and oil. But that revenue has been decreasing for a long time, and the tribe is looking into renewable energy, like the hydroelectric project. Scott Close says they are still in the planning stages of this project and doesn't know yet what type of energy will be used to pump water between the reservoirs, either it be fossil fuels or renewable energy like solar from their solar field. But he does know it'll be cost effective and it'll help make the tribe's energy sources financially profitable again. The decision makers here are constantly challenged with how do we get more for our people? How do we get more for our people? And this is it. You know, we're like, we're trying to backfill that void that was created by fossil fuels. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Sophia Stewart-Rossi in Toya, Colorado. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band, Strumbucket. You can help us spread the word about Jackson Unpacked by leaving a rating and review for the show in Apple Podcasts or just by telling a friend. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson. Jackson.